Welcome to Sales Unbound, brought to you by Sales Group. I'm your host, and Dana, and this is the show where we chat with inspiring founders and experts to get the inside scoop on how they made their business success. And today with me is Nicholas Saliba, uh, CEO and founder of Trion Analytics, a cross-channel analytics platform that helps internal communication professionals be more efficient. They've been around for 15 years, and it's really exciting to learn how you're doing it. Thanks for having me, Hannah. Well, thank you for being here. I know that you caught a cold, so let's let's get yeah. through it. Uh, hopefully, you'll feel better by the end of it. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, yeah, like I said, exciting uh, to to have you here. And maybe let's start with your background, right? How did you get to building Trian in the first place? Yeah, so I have an engineer background. I grew up in Lyon. It's the second largest town in France. Uh, near the Alps. So yeah, I got an engineer background in with major in civil engineering. So building roads and construction things. And at the end of my studies, I went to work for two years in LA, in the US. And I always wanted to start my company from a very young age. And I quickly realized that I will not, I would not build a large construction company from, from scratch because it's like a lot of capital, a lot of human and older, like the big construction deals are like trusted by major companies. So it's a very, very difficult industry to disrupt. On the other side, I got there uh, because I'm pretty old now in the dot com bubble. Like I was there between 98 and 2000. And that was just crazy because you got teenagers dropping out of high school, like raising at the time that was enormous for like raising $2 million. That was just like a lot of money back then to deliver pizza to your doorstep. And at this time it was really the, like not the beginning of the internet, but like the beginning of the effect of the internet and everything seemed possible. And so I, I, yeah, I finished my studies and then I, I went to work back to LA still in the civil engineering field. But I looked around how I could pivot to the IT side because I saw IT as a very big opportunity to disrupt any market. Um, and then I realized that uh, I couldn't afford the master at Stanford. I, I might have got in <laughs> academically, but it was $60,000 per year. I couldn't afford that. So I majored, I went yeah. back to my school, which is actually a good school also for uh, computer science. It's called INSA. And I majored, I did a master there to kind of like get an understanding of the, how IT works. And then I started to work in some SI service integrators for a few years. And then I started my first company in 2005, which was a small SI. And it, it was very lucrative, but it was not very fun. That's kind of like an HR job where you, yeah. you place consultants into jobs they don't really like and it's. I mean, sometimes they like the mission, but it's, didn't feel like, um, I mean, I, I didn't like it too much. And the other thing is that it's not scalable, right? So when you have a, a business that's based on people, well, basically you cannot make more revenue than you have people. So either you have to buy other company or you have to hire a lot of people. And then at some point you don't even care what you're selling. You're just hiring people and placing them. And I mean, really not fun. So. I had this really, that was back in 2000, yeah, 2007 or something like that. I was working with like someone very, very bright. It was, it was younger than me and like maybe 
three, four years. And he was explaining the architects at Capgemini how they should do it. And it was just an intern. And, and we got friends. And then I talked to him into like starting something. And really, we had no idea what to start. And we wanted to, to build a software company. That was for sure because the beauty of the scalability and for the reason I, I talked about, it's hard to scale people. But if you build a piece of software, you can scale infinitely with a very large margin and minimal amount of resources. Um, and so we brainstormed for a year. We were still like working, but we were like brainstorming our what we were going to build and we're both engineers. So that's also a problem because we started to think, okay, what product could we build? And we built a really like, so we were both working in big corporation. People were, were wasting a ton of time in useless meetings and sending hundreds of emails. And, and we said to each other, like, it's not efficient at all. And if we, if we could measure that, Maybe people would cut the crap, maybe, but I mean, be more efficient <laughs> and, the crap. And, and the idea and yeah. the idea of, uh, sorry, pardon my French, I'm French. So. Uh, That's okay. That's okay. Building the BI of collaboration emerge. Like we're going to build a software mm -hmm. that measures everything that's going on internally. So the number of emails you receive or you send every day, the time you spend in meetings, you know, with all the tools you have and try to be more efficient and maybe try to detect bottlenecks between departments and some departments are overloaded and mm -hmm. stuff like that. So that was the idea. And like I said, we were two engineers. So what we did is we hired in more engineers and we built the POC. And then one, it was very shiny and it was flash at the time. So very shiny UI with like dashboards everywhere. We asked ourselves, okay, so we, who do we sell that to? <laughs> Which is exactly the opposite of what you should do. No, I know, but right. back then I didn't. And uh, interestingly, the inform information overload problem was a big problem in big corporations. So people were eager to learn more, you know, the situation on the ground because they heard from employees how many emails they were, you know, like they were overloaded and they wanted to know. So we started the company in 2008, April 2008. And we released the first um, POC production ready uh, version in December, I think it was 2009. And in 2010, we got some traction, right? So we, we went into some startup events. So that was somewhere held by Microsoft, somewhere held by IBM. So it was like Spark, and we got some awards or whatever and a little bit, a little bit of press. And we also got three POC with big French brand. So Bouygues Telecom, DCNS, they're like, they're called Naval Group now and TF1, which is like the first uh, private uh, cha um, TV channel. And so with these three POC um, that demonstrated interest from big corporation and some press, we were able to raise a, a seed round with Business Angel in June, 2010. But I mean, in June, 2010, we raised to 225k euro right so i mean with hmm. the amounts of now it's it looks really 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 small but at the time right and you haven't been and, doing it and, ever um, since right yeah, yeah we, we did some very small internal rounds but yeah we're we're um we're just um we don't have any vc money and, um, mm -hmm. and we're very careful about money yeah so that's that's a long story but that's how it all started
Right. Okay. That's wonderful. No, I mean, you use your, your own experience working at big companies. Uh, and uh, yeah, you, you try to work with one of the problems that you encountered. Uh, but it was really, really interesting when you said, you know, we, we built this amazing flashy product that, you know, was absolutely perfect in every sense. Uh, but only one thing was missing. You didn't really know who to sell it to. So a lot of founders find themselves in these situations, right? And it's, well, it's not the worst case scenario, right? Again, based on your story, you can work around it and gain some traction after, but it's, it's not the best either, right? So <clears throat> how did you go from there? Having that product, you said you were going to events and uh, again, the, I think that's a great strategy. Whatever, whatever you do, try to leverage what's around you your social media, their events, their podcasts, blogs, anything that, that you can use to gain traction, to find your customers. So what worked for you? How did you, I mean, it's easier said than done, right? We go to a conference, oh, we, we start talking, but um, again, for especially technical founders, uh, sometimes it's difficult to just talk about the product, right? A lot of them think, well, we'll show, you know, and we'll go from there and they will see it. And it's so wonderful that they will buy it right away. So how did you do it? Um, how did you start getting uh, your first traction? How did you land your first customer? Well, uh, actually uh, to add up to that, I'm not a technical funder, right? I okay. did one year of computer science. Like I could pre pretty much more easily build a building than software, okay. right? So, so I, I'm in a position where I don't have a sales background, but I'm doing sales and I cannot even challenge IT because I'm not really an IT guy. I'm, I'm IT mm -hmm. enough so that I understand, you know, how it works and I can just like challenge what's, you know, when a developer comes to me and say, oh, this is not possible because mm -hmm. that's the rule base. They always tell you yeah. it's not possible or it's going to cost too much, uh, I can challenge that. But how do we do it? Well, that's the beauty of uh, entrepreneurship, right? It's someone said to me that's entrepreneurship. It's like you jump from a plane and you figure out the way to build a parachute. And that's kind of like how it is. Yeah, no, but it's really how it is. And it's, it's funny because it doesn't scare me at all. It's just because I love that, right? So I'd, I'd rather, mm -hmm. I worked in big corporation and I just... I, I felt all these meetings for nothing that lasted two hours and I just suffocated there. And I'd rather just, you know, be with my team and innovate and try new stuff. And, you know, if it fails, it fails. That's life. It's just like, at least you had a blast and you did something you really loved. So there's always pressure like for, uh, I don't know, 14, 15 years. No, maybe not now, but for maybe 10 years, we had one month of cash ahead of us, right? So every month, mm -hmm. if we didn't close this customer, it was it was bankruptcy so and you know some i have a family some developers have a family it's not just us building something in the garage and we're not 18 so it's i feel responsibility for that but that being mm -hmm. said it's more about um it's more about finding the pain points of the customer and, and trying to address them with what's in the software um mm -hmm. but the thing is that we didn't think that through too much before building it that's the problem that's I mean, every time you make a mistake, it's okay if you reflect on it. And if you don't do it anymore, that's the, right. the point of the mistake. If you keep doing it, then that's a problem. So, so based on that, we, what happened is that for yeah, three, four years, uh, 
we the, the sales were very very difficult it was we were generating interest from other big corporations but the current customers would not buy a subscription right they would do punctual audits okay. they would pay even very like some one customer paid 65000 for one audit right so we would plug the software okay. and we would analyze all their collaboration and tell them, okay, so this mm. department is overloaded, it's too much time in meeting, this is what we see in other companies and stuff like that. And then at the end, we would have like uh, a meeting with the board and or some high executive, and we would just talk about two hours about these hundred slides and hand them over. But the bottom line so is... You're like getting back to the meetings that you, that you didn't like. Yeah. Yeah, well, okay. I, I hope we delivered more value than in the meetings that I was participating in, but... That's another yeah. story. The problem was it was not scalable and it was not SaaS and it was very punctual, right? It was not recurring. And in 2014, we really, the situation was really bad. I think we were very close to, to, to declare bankruptcy. Um, but that's also a situation where when you ask yourself, do I need to cut my right arm or my left arm? There's no more bullshit. Like you need to make the right decision and you cannot hide for anything. So um, yeah. at that time, since we were not able to sell the cross-channel collaboration analytics platform, we realized that there was a new kid on the block called Yammer, an enterprise social network that Microsoft had just bought. So mm -hmm. that was part of the Office 365 suite. And we look at the native analytics and it was really very, very limited. And then what we did right this time is that we interviewed 10 internal communication directors that were using Yammer, a big corporation, and asking them, okay, so what do you like about the native analytics? What's missing? How much will you pay for something that's better? How soon you want it, right? And based on that, we realized that um, there was a market. Um, and so we, during that very, very difficult year in 2014, we built a SaaS software. So I had to convince everyone like the board the developer nobody like you know when you build a software everything everyone will tell you well put more salespeople. you know like it's a problem of sales right it's not selling so put more salespeople, put more yeah. marketing it will sell and i had to convince everyone that the solution we had will never sell and that we should try to build a new solution that's SaaS, and that's on yammer that was very new at the time and like nobody really knew what i was talking about but we did and we released the, the first version in the Microsoft store or the Yammer store because Yammer was a bit separated, like they bought it, but it was difficult to integrate. In the Yammer store, I think it was uh, mid-November or 1st of November 2014. And by Christmas, so like a month and a half, we had 60,000 users monitored, more than 60 corporations trying it. And every time a corporation would, would try it, it's, it's just an app, right? So they, they go to the Yammer store and say, oh, I'm going to try that because the analytics sucks. So I want more. And let's check that out. And there were three apps, including us. And they would just try. And they would just automatically um, launch the trial, compute the KPIs. And then we would receive an email. Oh, IKEA, an 80,000 members network is trying your... your And this is the, the email of the admin. So it was just like gold. And that really reset the whole thing. So that's like, I, I take it as a, like a new beginning, January, 2015. Like we almost 
restart with zero euro on the bank account and like a fresh product. Just to tell you at the time, we built a, a time period, right? And it was fake. Mm -hmm. so it was always last week. Okay. And the customer would call me and say, oh, I, I, you know, there's a bug because I cannot go to last month. And I would fake it like, oh, yeah, let me talk to support. I'll get back to you. But actually, oh, it was <laughs> fake. <laughs> but I knew it would come next week. So it was a risk. And that was the opposite of building a perfect product that nobody wanted. And that, was, and that got yeah. us a really good traction from 2015 to 2018. So like I said before, we didn't need any money because the growth was there. And the Yammer store was such a great inbound source that it got us a lot of leads. And then all we had to do was better the product, right? So we did a complete product from Yammer. And then we realized, oh, the same people use SharePoint as an intranet, right? So let's build a tree analytics for SharePoint. And then we were able to upsell existing customers and we were able to find new customers that were interested only on SharePoint because actually it's a bigger market than Yammer. And that's how kind of like going from a very bad situation, we turn in, into um, a very cool situation where you get growth by yourself, but it was a bit lucky because this inbound flow at some point stalled, right? And we had mm -hmm. to find other ways to you know, to, to boost sales, but that was really, that was going from the dark side to the bright side in like a matter of months. So that was great. Like right. in 2014, we almost bankrupt. And in 2015, we were like, at, I don't know, 150% growth or something. So it was just like great. And then for the morale of Wonderful. the teams and, you know, that, that's important to get wins. Yeah. Looking for new ways to find customers for your SaaS business? Consider adding an affiliate or customer referral program. Rewardful is the easiest affiliate tracking platform to set up, manage, and scale for SaaS companies. Log your customer acquisition cost and only pay based on results. Integrate Rewardful with your Stripe or Paddle account and set up your affiliate campaigns in minutes. Rewardful automatically tracks referrals, calculates commissions, handles upgrades and downgrades all seamlessly in the background, whether you sell one-off purchases or recurring subscriptions. Companies like Podia, Copy.ai, Parametrics, Synthesia, and many, many more are already using Rewardful to add that sweet, sweet MRR to their businesses. Sign up now at Rewardful.com for a free 14-day trial and turn your biggest fans into your best marketers. Oh, absolutely. Yes, definitely. And uh, well, getting a little bit deeper on that, um, iteration is something that a lot of founders struggle with and a lot of teams struggle with. So yeah, sure, there is this point where you guys survived and everything went great at the end, but there is this period that you were describing where you had to convince the team, you had to convince the board that this is the right decision to make. And maybe you had to convince yourself at some point that, you know, Trian at the state uh, and the way it was built maybe doesn't work anymore. So how does it, I guess we're getting a little bit into like founder mentality and like founder mindset. Yeah. How do you deal with that situation? You know, your amazing shiny product is not really selling so how do how to stay calm how to ditch that idea without 
feeling disappointed that you know this didn't work we have to start from scratch basically yeah also also one thing i didn't mention is that my my partner my cto with who i created Tryon, left the company in the like i think 2013 so like just before the 2014 okay. period and so, so i was really by myself so i our first developer who was there from the first time got CTO and is very capable and he stayed, which is great. But I lost the person I founded the, the company with, so I was a bit lonely. I, bet. I think, I think uh, there's like a, an image that I love. It's like a tree circle and you get like delusional changing the status quo and I don't remember the, what the third one is, but basically uh, you either are a serial killer or a psychopath, but in the middle, you're an entrepreneur because basically you need to yeah. think that you're going to change the status quo and that it's going to work. And I think the most important quality of any founder is, is really resilience, right? It's like, if you look at all the success story, the press will always make you think it's from point A to point B. It's just skyrocketed. But every company, yeah. when you dig under the carpet, it's never like that. There's like always up and down. And it's just life. It's normal. Um, sure. But it's more the way, like when you're in a bad period, it's just knowing how to rebound. It's, but it's also an incredible faith in that you're going to make it, right? So that's why sometimes Absolutely. Uh, founders can be can be seen as delusional. Like if you had pitched me Twitter, mm -hmm. like I would say, what? Who will write 140 character messages to say what they're doing? Like nobody cares. Like and that's gonna make money. Yeah. So I mean, some and it's gonna make a lot of money. Yeah. Nobody. Nobody really thought that. I mean. I don't know if nobody, but I didn't think it would make a, a, a good startup. So, and sometimes I would pitch in these startup events and, and I would see all these people passionate about the company and they would pitch me the thing. And I remember one time I pitched at a, it's a very like exclusive club of the best school in, in, in France. So all the alumni mm -hmm. are like in big corporation that money and so they invest in startups too. To, so it's like prestigious, but anyway, and, and the people that were pitching before me literally invented an umbrella for the sun. And I'm not kidding in card box. Oh. And they're like, but I'm like, dude, it's like you put anything on, I mean, you can cover your head whenever you want. And it's like, no, no. And the guy was like, no, you don't understand. We patented the thing. We have like three patents on it. And I was like, man, I hope I'm not like that because. It's like, he was so passionate about it and that's great. But then I was like, how can you think you're going to sell umbrellas for sun, you know, for an expensive price, just because you have a patent. Mm -hmm. And I, yeah. and sometimes I myself, how am I, you know, like I'm, which state of mind am I? Because sometimes it's not going to work. But I mean, at some point, if you to go back to your questions, long answer, but if it doesn't sell, it doesn't sell. And uh, it's not the customer's problem. You know, it's like your problem. Yeah. So what we do very, they know it's easier. We have customers, but before it's, we didn't do it. We, and now we're doing it systematically is very early on. We challenge the customers about their needs. What's really mm -hmm. difficult is that the customer will never tell you, okay, this is exactly what I need. Draw you a sketch, like yeah. give me that and I'll pay that much. It's never like that. And, and so you have to challenge them about 
what their pain points are. And some of them, they will send you wish lists like it's Christmas, but they only need one thing, right? Mm -hmm. So you have to tell them, yeah. um, it's like, okay, if I build that, would you pay 20% more? No. Okay. So, and what's your need out of 10? It's one or it's 10? And they're like, oh, and it's like almost like NPS, right? When they say six, it's like, they don't need it. They won't pay for it. If they say 10 yeah. or nine, it's like, it's interesting. You can dig deeper. And we do that very early on. Like we do that, we okay. sketch something and we just like present the sketch to them. So it's like no development, nothing, just like the idea. And we refine the idea and we do first release that's we're embarrassed of. Like it's like the minimum, minimum, minimum of the business case. And then if based on that, customers ask for more, then we consider a V2 of that. And that's how you validate that what you're building fits the, the problem of the persona. And also in the way you sell it, if when you approach your customer, you make them feel that you understand their work, mm -hmm. it, 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 the sale is much easier. You must struggle to generate your monthly report. By the way, here it's generated in one, no, in one click and you can define it here and here. Uh, you know, so you, you ask questions about, do you have that pain point? Oh, yes, I do. Oh, look at this mm -hmm. feature that help you, which is different from the first demo that I was doing is like, look at that shiny object and you click here and this pop-up comes up and it's all green and yellow. And it's like, the demo went well every yeah. time. Like if I, if I had one euro every time the customer said, oh, that's great. I would be a millionaire, but, but um, that's not how sales go. And it's not, no, not I've what learned they were looking it. for. Yeah. Okay. All right. So let's, let's talk about your sales because now you've got customers, you're oriented towards bigger enterprise that, you know, that are dealing with the problems that you're solving, how you're approaching them. How did you realize like what size the company is ideal for what you're building? Who's your perfect persona and how are you winning them over? Is it over, I don't know, cold emails? And if it is, how did you perfect your strategy there? If there is a need for a demo call or just a call, you know, then tell us about that. Yeah, great question. So like I mentioned with Yammer, um, we had some inbound leads and it was just insane. And I was just like, we couldn't even keep up with just the inbound leads. And it's just luck, actually. No, I realized it's, I mean, it's not completely luck, but it's, it's a bit of luck. Um, and then when it's told, we, we ask ourselves what we could do, um, first to make the, the sales team more efficient and then also to, 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 to scale sales. Um, and that summer when we thought about that, I read a great book called predictable revenue from Aaron Ross and explain how they scale that sales force. So basically his team and himself, they. They reflected on why, you know, sometimes deals are stalling and or companies cannot keep up their numbers. And and basically the, 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 the idea is very simple, is that you split lead generation, closing and CSM. And and because the reason is that if you have three salesperson doing everything, uh, you will never know where is the bottleneck, right? So you could have a super nice yeah. quarter with leads that have been generated three years ago, you know, and for some reasons they will close this quarter, but then you're going to be dead for the next two or three quarters. And you're not going to see it coming because it's just going to be a big fluffy pipe and same for the renewals and everybody's doing the same thing. 
The second point is that the highest paid and the most difficult skills are sales, which is closing, should not spend time. I mean, I know there's a debate there, but I don't think they should spend time generating leads. You know, it's like I, I play football. Yeah. If you have a good forward that scores goals, you don't ask him to defend and pass the ball. You just want him, you, you pass the ball and he scores. That's just, that's his mm -hmm. job and that's fine. And so it's better to have junior people doing SDR thing, uh, generating leads, nurturing them, and to have closer, which are your most experienced and usually most expensive salespeople, close the deal. And then you can have other people retaining the customers, upselling them, and, you know, uh, which is an easier job to, I think. Sometimes they're called hunters and farmers, right? So it's not the same job to hunt and to farm. Yeah. And so after that summer, I I changed the, how my sales team was, was dis, um, distributed. And I had, I had people, SDR, that were generating leads, and then I had closers, and then I had CSM. And that being said, what's really great is that once you do that, you can really pilot if you're going to make it or not, because what you need to do is what's your, what's your uh, annual contract value, your ACV, you know, what's your average ACV, how many leads do you generate every month and what's your percentage of closing? And that's it. You can pilot your whole sales business with these three KPIs, because if for some reason you're not, you're not uh, hitting your numbers in terms of leads, let's say you're generating 50% of the leads you should be, there's no magic. The closer is not going to close twice his amount, right? And so you're not going to hit your number. And the same, if you have too much churn, it's like, uh, it's like, it's never going to grow. It's not never going to scale. So that being said, once I did that, we started doing outbound campaign, email outbound campaign, because okay. it's really, it's really something that I've never seen fail. Like the ROI is, is through the roof because with just a few emails and some tools like we use Yesware, but there's are outreach, just like tons of tools like that and the right persona and the right message. Well, we, you know, we iterated there too. You can consistently generate leads every month. And then these leads are qualified or not. And then when they're qualified, they're going to closing and then the closer has to close them. And yeah, we, we iterated in the outbound campaigns with the message, with the, how we approach them. Um, and as a CEO, I receive tons of cold email every day, but so many are bad. They're like, Hey, uh, as a CEO, you should know that we're doing this, you're doing that. And we're such a cool company and you've never heard of me, but it's great. Let's have a call. It's like, no, I don't have time to do that. <laughs> yeah. And it's not too fast. It's more like. Uh, your outbound should reach out to persona by showing them you understand them and by and by telling them like bringing them value so for example now we're focusing on internal yeah. communication persona you know so internal communication department and so we would typically approach them like saying hi anna as an uh, internal communication professional you might have an intranet so you might be interested into our uh, 2023 digital workplace benchmark. Here's the link to the report. Hope you like it, right? So what I did here is like, I didn't talk about Tryon. I didn't talk about our software, but I know because I'm targeting internal comms people 
that you might have an intranet because we know 90, 95% of our customers have one. And then I bring you added value ebook. So there's a, if, if you're, it's the moment and everything, at least I'm not a spam. You, you will retain Tryon as an interesting company that brings value. And if you're interested, if you want to change your intranet or just download the report, you will download the report. And then we'll nurture that, right? Because yeah. it's, it's a co cognitive base. If some, you give something to someone, then they'll like owe you something. So they at least will take the call. And so the SDR, uh, when they do their campaigns, then they call the hot nurtured leads not like just completely cold. They call people that have, you know, interacted yeah. with our brand. They've seen the email, uh, downloaded things and stuff like that. That doesn't mean it's not magical. You know, they might not need analytics right away. They, they might not have budget. They, I mean, then there's qualifying, but at least, yeah, that's, um, that's how we complemented this inbound uh, leads that stole all that. And it's, yeah. it's constantly changing. You know, I'm always talking about CEOs about, how do you scale? How, which other channel do you have? No, I, I see a lot of social selling on LinkedIn. So we're going to look into that. It's constantly moving, you know, our bank email campaigns have been around for 20 years mm -hmm. now. So, and we've the post COVID world where nobody goes to the office anymore and nobody wants to get, give their private cell phone. They're unreachable you know, where they used to be reachable by HQ. And yeah. Yeah. so it's a constant reflection. How can we scale? Mm -hmm. Which channel can we use? But it's always, it's funny because when I talk to other CEO, it's the, always the same question, you know, who do you sell to? What are the pain points and what value do you bring to, do you bring to the table? And, uh, and, and marketing is articulating that in a way that's easy to understand. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So could you maybe share a hack that is helping you with qualifying your leads with closing the deals, uh, or maybe, I don't know, uh, maybe just finding just the right companies that could need uh, Trian. Since the start, it's like you have to fight for your first customer. You have to mm -hmm. uh, convince the first employee to work with you. You have to convince the first investor to put one euro on your, you know. And so it's very hard to qualify leads for me. Right? Because I want to take everyone. I want to build every feature because I want to, you know, uh, at yeah, least I yeah. want it. Um, because I want the company to survive. I want to, and that's not the right approach. No, since we're doing more scaling and channel approach, it's more about this is not the right time or they don't have budget or they're not the right fit because they don't feel the pain enough. Right. So first it goes with targeting. We don't target companies under 1,000 employees, but why? Not because okay. we don't like SMBs. It's more like if you're in a smaller company, SMB or a very small company, internal comms never has budget for that, right? They, and the company is small enough that you, you can feel the morale of the staff. You have channels that tell you that because yeah. the, we help internal communication professional be more efficient, but the the, for me, internal communication helps boost employee engagement, you know, by restating the purpose of the company, the values of the company, why they're working there. It's important, especially in the COVID, post-COVID world where a lot of people are work from home. If they don't have any link with the company, they could switch to the competitor very easily because they'll do exactly the same job, you know. So they need to have a link, a, a relationship with the company. Internal comes for me is that. 
But the more and more we talk with customers, you see different level of maturity, right? So the old approach was I'm going to, I'm going to blast the same message in all the channels I got and, and I hope it will reach them, right? So I'll send them a newsletter with everything. All the news are in the intranet and then I'll do another slice on, on the enterprise social network. And well, if they haven't seen it, what can it, what more can I do? And now with yeah. AI and personalization, I think it's more to reach them because the, one of the big thing is that it's not because you send the message that they're going to read it. Everybody has an email, but then the read rates of the newsletter um, are not that great. You know, it's, I think it's less than 30%. So to go back to qualification, it's large company. So more than 1,000 employees and also companies in geographies where employees or talents are short, where it's a pain, like so it, it's a pain to change an employee. So it could be IT, uh, it could be hospitality, it could be different industries. But basically, if you want to retain employees, you treat them well and you inform them well. And so internal comms is not like on a side seat somewhere, you know, just like someone just blasting news for whoever to read. It's it's important. Sometimes they report to, to the HR director or sometimes even to the CEO. So it's more on the culture of the company. And in certain geography where employees are just like interchangeable, where we don't do any business there because they don't really value internal communication. So why would they put budget there? And then why would these people measure anything? Right. I had someone tell me one day, why should I measure if people read what I'm producing? Because I'm not going to stop doing it. It's my job, which is a very weird approach. Yeah. Because it's yeah. like, uh, so it doesn't matter if nobody reads it, you know, it's, it's your job is just to, to writing stuff and you don't care if they read it. It's, it's, mm. but anyway, but the state of minds. So I would say it's mostly Europe, the North America zone and, uh, yeah, corporation about 1000 employee and the personal internal communication as well. Right. So one thing I didn't mention until then is that we used to have an analytics platform on tools mm -hmm. like for intranet, but there were some IT use case, you know, inactive documents, inactive sites, and some comms use, use case, like what are my top news? And we really, we rebranded everything. We, do, we we released a new product actually last year after two or three years of surveys and, and developments and everything. And it used to be very siloed. And now we have one analytics platform only for internal communication professional where they plug all their channels and they measure the performance of their campaign cross channel, they generate their monthly report. And we try to give them advanced features such as best time to post. What is the best time to post to reach a specific audience, you know, and which channel should I use? So to go against that approach where I'm going to blast the same message everywhere, where nobody's going to read it. I'm trying to be more specific about, you know, where should I post it and what time? And also what I tell our customers is it's like, for me, internal comm is very much like uh, external marketing. If you target someone externally that doesn't know you and you tell him something he doesn't care about, well, he's never going to read it again. Or And so in big, we have big corporation with lots of people in factories like Velux, they're doing manufacturing windows, WestJet, it's an airline. So 
and you cannot, at WestJet, for example, you cannot address the pilots with the same with the same topics yeah. as the flight crew or the people on the ground or the HQ. So you have to tailor your message to whoever you're talking to. It sounds, um, it sounds like the the beginning, but a lot of customers they don't really do personal internally about you know what are my different personal internally. I think I absolutely agree. Like. Uh... Communication is communication, like wherever you put it, if it's external marketing or internal or branding, like whatever you do, you have to tailor it like you don't talk to every person the same right in your life. So it's completely the same in business as well. So why would you assume that, you know, uh, I get so many emails that are just like the same. I know that I'm one of the thousands of people they've sent it to and it's just like there is no personalization at all and uh, i don't feel like uh, i don't even feel guilty putting them in spam i mean i'm just like so over it <laughs> yeah. so yeah. yeah and that's that's also challenging because you have to be very direct and good right away right you have to yeah uh, when i read an email it might be two seconds before i close it three mm -hmm. seconds stop Absolutely. so in the first two sentences you have to tell me something that's relevant otherwise i close it and yeah. that's but that's good that's that's forcing you to be good to yeah to cut the crap yes absolutely yeah <laughs> cut the crap yes <laughs> exactly yeah Got all that, right that's um, your bullshit policy okay that's, that's transparency, good but so I, I think we have we have the same policy here here at SaaS Group and we love it. Like you have to, yeah, you have to of course like be nice and be respectful and honest, but also, yeah, just cut to the chase. Tell us what you think. Tell us what you want. You know, long messages are overrated. But yeah, okay. I have one more one more question. Something that everyone gets here is what is so far the biggest win and the biggest failure it could be for you as a founder or for Triana as a business. Uh, well, it's difficult, but the failures are actually, nobody likes to fail. So it's sure. normal. It's horrible. And, but it's at first, at first I took it a bit personally, like, well, they, they haven't understood the beauty of my product and they're not intelligent enough to understand the perfection of it. And no, I really approach it a very different way where it's like, what can I learn? Like what, what did go wrong? And every time we lose a big deal, I force my salespeople or I do it myself to have five minutes of the customers about like, Hey, I appreciate these five minutes. I just want the real story. What happened? Right? So is there a big feature missing? Were we completely off with the price? I mean, I know I've lost that deal. The, the goal is that next month I don't lose a similar deal. So I think the biggest win to me was, like I talked before, like convincing everyone to build that SaaS application in a very dark time where we were not selling anything and, mm -hmm. and why should we build a new product? And that the win was that it, it really got us out of the hole we were into. You know, it's not just like that I was right. I don't really care to be right. It's more yeah, like it sure. really helped us. Yeah go to a better place. So that was great. And that also, you know, after struggling for a long time and, you know, getting some wins is like really good. Like, because the, it's not only 2014 that was bad. It was like 
the years before, like very up and down. So sure. that was like the biggest thing. It could be the biggest failure. Well, it's probably the way, I don't know if it's, yeah, it's probably failure, but it, it, it's the way, what I described earlier as well is thinking about building a product first, right? And once it's all shiny, just asking yourself who you're going to sell it to, that's a big mistake. I don't know if it's like a big, I mean, yeah, it's a big mistake. And yeah, then, you, then, you turn it around. Yeah. Yeah. But I was like, I see it as, as time lost. So it's experience, mm -hmm. <laughs> but it's yeah, time yeah, lost. Yeah, yeah. It's right. like, I had to redo everything again. I think we could do it in half the time, but that's experience as well, because you don't do the same mistakes again. So, yeah. Absolutely. Right. As, as long as you learn from your mistakes, I think it's all um, experience. Yes, <laughs> that's the word. <laughs> Okay. Well, it's, you know, it's fascinating to see how after 15 years, iterations, ups and downs, economic downturns, you're, you guys are alive, you're profitable, you're still bootstrapping, you're shipping new features, you're finding new customers. That's really exciting. And I think very, very hopeful for many companies because this year hasn't been easy on everyone. And uh, yeah, it's really great that you shared that story, Nicholas. So thank you. Thank you so much for being here. I really enjoyed our conversation. Well, and yeah, hopefully we'll talk again sometime soon about your next big thing that you're building. Hopefully. Thanks a lot for having me. It was great <laughs> talking to you. Thank you, Nicholas, and take care. That was yet another awesome conversation on SaaS Unbound. We're always looking for new guests to share their experiences. We mostly talk with bootstrapped SaaS founders. And if you're one, reach out to me directly at anna at saas.group or find me on LinkedIn. If you're not bootstrapped or even not SaaS, but have a great story to tell, we want to hear from you too. And obviously, SaaS Unbound wouldn't be possible without the SaaS group a founder-friendly private equity company that buys awesome businesses that people love to take them to even greater success. If you're thinking about selling your company or just exploring your options, feel free to visit saas.group, fill in the form, and expect a response in under 24 hours.